Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Chatri Sityottong, the founder and chairman of One Championship, Asia's largest sports media property. Chatri started his career as many listening to this show have. He graduated from Tufts University, worked at Fidelity Investments and Bain Consulting, attended Harvard Business School, took a run at a technology startup, and then spent a decade working at hedge funds, culminating in launching his own fund, Azara Capital, that grew to $500 million in assets. But Chatri's story is vastly different from any stereotype he may appear on paper. Despite a comfortable life growing up, his family lost everything in the Asian financial crisis. While at Harvard, he subsisted on $4 a day, housed his mother in his dorm room, and hid that truth from everyone around him. A decade later, despite his financial success, Chatri felt an emptiness and loneliness at the top that he couldn't shake. Instead of pushing on, he returned investor capital and moved back to Asia. From there, he followed his passion for Muay Thai fighting and began building a budding sports empire. Our conversation tells Chatri's story, replete with lessons about entrepreneurship, investing, hard work, and the warrior spirit. For those who wonder if a career in the financial markets is the only thing they know, Chatri's path suggests a different and fulfilling way forward. I hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, this week, why not reach out to one of your siblings or best friends and tell them, hey, I just listened to the Capital Allocators podcast. You should check it out. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Chatri, thanks for joining me on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Ted. Really appreciate it. Let's start with this great story that you gave on, on a TED Talk about the frog under the coconut. Yeah, sure. You know, the frog under the coconut. So once upon a time, there was a frog, and he lived underneath a coconut uh, shell, and he didn't know that was his world. And he was super happy, you know, nibbling and eating on the coconut and, and playing around the sand. And of course, occasionally he could hear sounds on the outside, but he just thought, whatever, you know. And one day, the food ran out in the coconut shell, and so he had to figure out a way to, to get out of the coconut shell. So he jumped around and tried to figure out a way out, and eventually dug himself a hole and out. And when he came out, there was this massive, big blue sky, palm trees, waves crashing, and there's bugs everywhere, and he couldn't believe there was a whole other world. And he ate the best bugs he'd ever eaten you know, his whole time eating coconut, thinking that's, that was the bomb. But in reality, he's eating all the bugs and, and having the greatest time of his life. And I tell this story because the reality is, whether we want to admit it or not, the truth is that everyone at all levels of society, we are all in some way or shape or form that frog in the coconut, underneath the coconut shell, in the sense of we are always plagued with our fears, doubts, and insecurities. It doesn't matter who you are in, in the world. And, I, and I've been fortunate enough to you know, study at some of the best places in the world, work at some of the best places in the world, and um, have a little bit of success as an entrepreneur. And I really feel that if we can conquer our fears, doubts, and insecurities, you know, whether it's what our families think about us, our friends think about us, what society thinks, what should be on our CV, what should be on our resume, 
What will our HBS classmates think about us? If you can remove yourself from all this kind of societal crap and just listen to yourself and, 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 and do what you love and follow your passion and conquer your fears, doubts, and insecurities. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. Why would anyone want to you know, be associated with you? Whatever the, your, your, you know, your, your doubts, fears, and insecurities are. And you'll find out there's a whole new world. And I think that's, you know, the reason why I say this in my TEDx, because I feel that was, I was in many ways a frog underneath a coconut shell as a hedge fund manager. I mean, I didn't realize it. I, I had a, a, an awesome time, you know, in, uh, about a decade in Wall Street, and I loved it. You know, I loved being a hedge fund manager, and, and, you know, I was an MD at Maverick, and then eventually spun out and had my own hedge fund and, you know, investing all over the world. And I had a blast. But I didn't realize how much of my career choice at that time were based on the fact that, you know, I came from a poor background before entering uh, HBS. And once you get into HBS, there are certain career paths and norms. Let's go back to that. So how did you get your way from where you grew up? I was raised in Thailand. And I, as a child, I lived in a very comfortable upbringing. When we first started, my father was, you know, I would say lower middle class. But, you know, when I was in my teenager years, he, would, he, he was what I would call well-to-do. I wouldn't say he was spectacularly wealthy, but he was very well-to-do. Uh, he had his own real estate company, a small real estate company. So I was very fortunate in that. But the Asian financial crisis hit uh, in the 90s, and literally two-thirds of the banks in Thailand went under, and there's no such thing as FDIC insurance in Thailand. So when you lost your life savings, you lost everything. And uh, my father, unfortunately, had massive months of debt. So he went bankrupt, and eventually we lost the family house, everything. How old were you at the time? My 20s, my early 20s. So I was still, you know, by Asian standards. You know, in, in, in Asia, a little bit different than America. In America, is when you're 18, you leave the house. In Asia, usually you leave the house at 30, but the roles reverse in the sense of your parents come to live with you. So you live in your parents' home until you're 30, and then once you are, you know, married, then your parents come to live with you. That's just how Asia works, okay? So... My father eventually abandoned the family, and then it was my mom and myself, and um, and I became the breadwinner. I had to put my younger brother through school and, and provide for a future for my mom. And at the time, you know, my mom, you know, convinced me to apply to HBS and, and, and as a way out of poverty, and that I was the oldest son. I was my, it was my responsibility to take care of the family, and you know, I was even then I was a frog underneath the coconut shell. Actually, I. Thought, man, you know, first of all, I have no money to go to HBS. Second of all, I'm, I'm not smart enough to, you know, get in. And even if I got in, I wouldn't be smart enough to graduate. And where am I going to get the money to live and pay, uh, you know, school fees? And, I, you know, I just no way, you know, uh, given my parents' financial situation at the time and, you know, uh, and then all the responsibility I had. So I was actually debating at one point staying in Thailand and just working there and figuring out a way to provide for my family. But in the end, my mom really, you know, persuaded me and said, Chachi, you, you, you got to take the risk. I don't care, even if you're scared. And I, I had no confidence in myself. It wasn't like I was some valedictorian, you know, academic scholar kind of guy. No, I was a goofball in, in most of my life in school. And so I wouldn't say that I was one of these guys that had a lot of confidence academically, right? So that was the context in which I started HBS. So, you know, when I was at HBS, I was really ashamed and embarrassed of my family background. And I really kept it to maybe two or three people knew, my closest friends knew what was going on. But I, I lived on $4 a day when I, uh, when I was at Harvard Business School. I'm sure no one of my classmates knew because I pretended like nothing was wrong. But, you know, every time we were like, hey, let's go out to a pub night, this, that, the other, I'd make an excuse. I'd be like, oh, well, you know, hey, man, I'm going to hit the sack early. I'm tired or whatever. And, you know, just or if I did go out, I would never buy a single drink because I just, you know, it was too expensive. 
Um, and I had a spreadsheet, Excel spreadsheet on my laptop, uh, you know, in my dorm room. And um, it's four dollars and 13 cents. I still remember to this day, you know, because I calculate every single day what I spent, you know, and I couldn't you know, even buy a cup of yogurt. Uh, in my second year, my mom actually ended up living in the dorm in Morris Hall with me. You know, I always say, I didn't know, you know. And so we, I, you know, remember those little cars we had to swipe the, to, to get in the dorm. So I had to time that with my mom. So my mom, I was luckily in a single at Morris. And so that's when my mom was basically had nowhere to go. And I said, Mom, okay, you can come live with me. And so I slept on the floor and she slept in the bed in Morris. And back then, did you think about opening up a little bit more and asking for help from friends? No, not at all. I was very um, ashamed, embarrassed, and I was very fearful that I, you know, somehow everyone in the HBS community would look down upon me, um, that I come from a bankrupt family. Because, you know, in Asia, we became pariahs. I mean, in, sorry, in, in Thailand, you know, the family social circle, the friends, the family, the cousins, uncle, we became a pariah because my father went bankrupt, bankrupt. Not like bankrupt, oh, he lost assets and it still has millions. No, nothing. It was like bankrupt, abandoned family, broken family. You know, when I left Thailand that time, I thought that was the last time I'd, I would never return back to Asia. I thought I'm immigrating to America now. If I make it in HBS and I somehow graduate, I'm, and my mom did too, and you know, my younger brother, we all thought that was, I would never return back. You know, there's some things about Asian society that you know, when you lose your quote unquote face or your honor, that uh, it's not like in America. Of course, in America, going back, it's also bad. But Americans really love the underdog, the comeback story, the Rocky Balboa story, the American dream. You know, I think even Silicon Valley can fail a number of times and still be end up being very wildly successful, you know, as an entrepreneur. In Asia, it's very, very unforgiving that way. You become a pariah, a social pariah. So that was the state that I was in. And, you know, I... I, I I was very insecure and very ashamed, uh, very embarrassed of my family. And so I just, you know, only a couple friends knew. And so when you graduated, how are you thinking about what to do? Was it all about how are you going to make money and provide for your family at that point in time? Yeah. So when I entered, the game plan was, you know, because we'd read about, you know, that if you graduate from HBS, you can, you're basically guaranteed a six figure job, stable income. So my mom, she's a traditional Japanese lady, and she was like, Chachri, get a very prestigious job at a very prestigious company, get stability, and work there for the rest of your life, and you'll, you know, we'll be out of this situation, right? But I just got bit by the entrepreneur bug while I was at HBS my second year. Our classmates, Soon Lu and Kathleen Gaswad, uh, we ended up starting a startup during our second year. And lo and behold, we got angel funding, and one thing led to another, we had venture fat funding, and... I turned all the jobs down and my mom thought I was crazy and like, you know, here we go again. You know, your father just went bankrupt. How can you do this with the family? Why don't you just pick, I think I had like four or five job offers, you know, from the typical McKinsey's and, and Goldman's or whatever it is and, and, and hedge funds. And so um, my mom was going to shoot me, man. <laughs> she was really upset that I, you know, after graduation, I went to Silicon Valley and started a company. And that was, you know, when we came out, I was right in the height of the, the internet bubble, 1999 into 2000. Right, right. It was total, you know, bubble mania, and I didn't know it, and you know, but it looked like an awesome time, and so, you know, I went for it. You know, it, it turned out okay in the sense that we sold the company, but you know, it wasn't at the valuation we thought we 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 had because we we had actually received a verbal acquisition offer and early stage discussions for a buyout by AOL at the time, which, as you know, AOL at that time was massive. But we ended up turning it down and just focused, you know, we thought we were going to do much better. And then the Nasdaq bubble crashed. And, you know, so we sold the company, but it wasn't a I wouldn't say it was a victory by any means. It was 
a survival thing. And then what came next? Then um, I had three main loves growing up as a child that I really spent a lot of time learning and reading and analyzing stuff. So one was, you know, martial arts has been my, my greatest passion in life. Second was, you know, stock market. I love, I was always fascinated by the stock market investing. I read all the Peter Lynch books. I remember back in the 90s and early 2000s, Peter Lynch was all the rage. You know, the Magellan Fund, 29.4% annualized return returns over his, you know, 30 years of managing the Magellan. And so I'd read everything about Peter Lynch and, you know, that was something I wanted to taste. So after Silicon Valley, I realized, you know, I love entrepreneurship, but I didn't feel that I belonged in Silicon Valley, you know, because I wasn't a techie by any means. So I eventually um, landed a, a job with another fe- uh, fellow HPS alum who was running at the time a billion-dollar hedge fund, uh, Jeff Feinberg. And so uh, he invited me. He's a couple years older than us, a few years older than us. Um, and uh, he invited me, and that's my, my, my start in the hedge fund industry. And then I eventually um, interviewed with Maverick Capital and then eventually did that. And then um, after that, for a few years, I ended up starting my own uh, hedge fund. And were there aspects of the research process or just stock picking that you really did enjoy a lot? Yeah. Oh, oh, Matt. When I was a hedge fund manager, you know, even to this day, I manage my own public portfolio and, and, and with the same kind of enthusiasm. When I was a hedge fund manager, I, oh, two, two things. Okay. So when I was at Maverick Capital, I had a blast. I really loved it. it you know, it's an un- amazing organization. Uh, Lee Ainsley is an amazing guy. He built an amazing, uh, you know, hedge fund, and also I felt uh, very free as an investor to invest. I wasn't tied down by monthly returns or anything like that of that sort. We we're long-term investors. When I became a hedge fund manager on my own, that's when things really became less fun for me because you know, every month having to report, I'm like, dude, I don't even invest that way. You know, how am I supposed to know what I'm going to deliver for you? And and yet they'll be like, oh my god, you know, your volatility is out of control, whatever. And I'm like. You know, for me, monthly returns is a byproduct of your portfolio. It's not something I'm actively managing. I, I, I like all I did was I I bought great companies for what I perceived to be uh, low valuation, and I shorted uh, crappy companies for what I perceived to be high valuation. And usually, to be a catalyst on both the long and short side. But these monthly returns drove me insane, and literally, literally drove the love of managing money out of me because it was <laughs> stressful. You know, because when I was down five percent a month. I had to figure out, well, you know, I, I have to explain why. And I'm like, but I don't know why, because sometimes movements are just arbitrary, you know, literally in a month can be arbitrary, especially with my investments. I wasn't a trader. You know, I, I bought and held and added positions around catalyst or around conviction. And I did the same thing with shorts. So it wasn't like I had a master plan. So anyways, long story cut short, you know, I made enough money. And also another weird thing happened to me when I was a hedge fund manager. You know, when I was dirt poor, I thought the answer to life was make a shitload of money and you'll be happy. Because my problems were at the time rooted in, in financial problems, like my brother's education, my, my mother, how she's going to live. I had to figure that stuff out. Once I had made my money on Wall Street, you know, I had a sense of emptiness. And I remember this very well. I, you know, there was one year in my hedge fund and it was around 500 million U.S. at the time. And, and I had one, you know, focus fund that was basically about a, about a hundred million in, in capital. I was very focused in, in uh, a fund, and I think it's five positions, and um, and then the, the rest of the fund. And, and I had a pretty good year. I think it was like twenty percent something plus on the mothership fund, and then the focus fund had like 90 percent return. And you know, with a two and twenty structure, it's it's healthy. And so I felt happy for a minute, 
Then January rolls in and I'm like, I got to do this thing all over again. Like I see monthly returns. And that's when I realized, you know what? As much as I love investing, I don't love being a hedge fund manager. And also I felt empty. What, what am I going to do? Okay, so I grow to a billion, but my problems are going to be the same. I grow to two billion, three billion, five, but whatever the number is, I still have to report monthly returns. I still have to go through this process of feeling like, you know, I, I was making the stock market more efficient, but I was not, I just felt, you know, something was missing. And, and, and I'm not saying that hedge funds is, is, is not an amazing and honorable profession. It is. It's just for me, deep down in my soul, I knew it wasn't. And I think that's the whole, comes back to the whole frog and the coconut. I think that because of my fears down in insecurities of being poor and ashamed and embarrassed, I went after the money as hard as I could. I got the money. I got the prestige. I got the MD title, you know, one of the top world's top hedge funds. I had my own fund on the external world from everything on paper. You know, I looked like I got everything. You know, I went to, to the right school, came out, went to Silicon Valley, Wall Street, blah, 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 blah. But when I look back on it compared to my, to my life today, I think that was a frog in a coconut shell because I was still listening to my fears, doubts, and insecurity. I still needed validation of that MD title or that, you know, hedge fund uh, title or the Wall Street, you know, being around the smartest people in the world and that whole thing that we are sold as business school students, right? What was your biggest fear at that time? That I couldn't see myself doing this until I was 80 years old, like Buffett did. You know, Buffett's, you know, he's also one of my heroes, one of my role models, but I couldn't envision that life. I was like, I, it was painful. And so then I started getting afraid of like, man, like, you know, here I am with all the, you know, my mom said, oh, wow, she's so proud of her son because he's in Wall Street. He has his own hedge fund. It's, you know, prestigious, blah, blah. And all, and my network was all primary Wall Street. And then I got really worried about like, you know, like, damn, like I'm hiding behind all this fancy titles and all this, you know, and it wasn't me. So I, I was most afraid that I was going to miss out on life. And that's what really woke me up, really woke me up, you know. Was there a moment or a day where you woke up and went, I can't do this anymore. I got to figure something else out. Yeah. Uh, it actually happened in my best year. Again, I was sitting alone in a sushi restaurant and I got a pretty sizable, you know, carry that year. And I was, you know, and I was eating, eating alone for lunch and I realized, shit, man, like I, I just felt like empty. I felt alone. I felt lonely. And I'm like, if this is success, man, like, I don't know what, the, you know? And then, then when I had a rough year in, in 2008, then it really woke me up, right? Because then it's like, if you love something and you go through a bad time, you love it. So therefore, you're going to do it no matter because you love it. When you're in the game for the wrong reasons, i.e. prestige, money, the external stuff, then when bad things happen in any field, okay, you're not going to have the passion, the perseverance to see it through, all those doubts, fears, and insecurities come back again, and then you start wondering, what am I doing with my life? And that's what happened. And so the seed was planted in my most successful year, and, and down the road when I had my worst year, that's when it really came to fruition. So what would you do? I called all the largest investors, and I said, and I'm going to retire. Here's your capital back, and told my, my, my team, and it was shocking news and all that stuff. And at the time, I had offices in New York and Singapore, and you know, but it was the right thing to do. So I'd lost the fire, the passion. I, I had enough money to last me for a few lifetimes and I just didn't need it anymore. So I, I want to make sure that I did the right thing, you know? And did you at that point in time have an idea of your head of what you were going to do next? 
No, zero, zero. And what happened? I I just knew. So, you know, the funny thing is this whole time, even when I was a hedge fund manager on Wall Street or when I was in Silicon Valley or even when I was at HBS, I did martial arts every day, you know, as I have been for the last 30 years. It's my greatest passion. It's my happiest couple hours a day, literally, as a head, or even now when I, you know, I still train even now and doing martial arts is still the happiest part of my day. And so it was around that time when UFC started taking off in the U.S. Um, and I started thinking about opportunities in Asia. I started thinking about moving back permanently because I had offices in, in Singapore and, and New York for my hedge fund. So I had a little bit of, of a peak. And then, I had a, and then it hit me one day, very simple thesis. I said, every region of the world has several multi-billion dollar sports media properties. So you go to North America, it's NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, NASCAR, UFC, etc. And they're all worth several billion to up to $30 billion a piece. You go to Europe, it's the same thing. F1, English Premier League, Champions League, Bundesliga, Spanish Liga, all worth a few, few billion to $30 billion a piece. You come to Asia at the time, there's literally nothing, nothing on a pan-Asian basis. There, it was IPL, which is a cricket league in India, but cricket won't cross geographies in, in Asia because no one really plays cricket in Asia except for India. And uh, that was a billion-dollar business. And there was, you know, baseball league in Japan, billion-dollar business, the, the, uh, the Japanese uh, professional baseball league there, but nothing on a pan-Asian basis. And Asia has 4.4 billion people and 2 billion views in the same time zone. And I said, why isn't it? So I, I started researching it just like I put, on, put my hedge fund manager hat on. And I realized that it hadn't been done before because all the media broadcasters were, the entire history of Asia was basically importing sports. So they paid massive media rights to F1, to EPL, to NBA, to broadcast sports here. So you went all around Asia and say, who's your favorite team? Oh, Chicago Bulls. Who's your favorite uh, uh, player? Oh, David Beckham or Michael Jordan. But it has nothing to do with Asia. Nothing. And the reason why Olympics is so powerful because ultimately human beings are tribal. They want to root for people who, you know, come from the same cultural background, the same values. They want to root for people who look like them, think like them, act like them. You know, just it's tribal, your own city, your own state, whatever it is, in this case, your own country. So then I said, man, there's going to be there's got to be a way. Um, and the crazy thing is Asia has been the home of martial for 5000 years. There's a martial arts that's homegrown, part of culture, part of tradition, part of history. Every single country, karate in Japan, Taekwondo in Korea, uh, Kung Fu in China, Sambo in Russia, Muay Thai in Thailand, Silat in Indonesia, Lutwe in Myanmar, the list goes on and on. So I said, man, then this is like, you know, I get to do what I love. I know it's a crazy idea. And all my friends and family, my mother thought I was crazy. Don't do it. You're so stupid. Do not retire as a hedge fund manager. You've got a solid base here. Why don't you just build the 500 million and make it into a billion or two billion, three million, keep going. And I knew I was a pretty decent investor because, I, you know, I'd done it long enough where I, I, I had enough of a track record um, working for other people as well as working for myself that I knew that I was a reasonably good investor. But, you know, I just, again, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you should do it for the rest of your life. You should do something that you really, really love, you know? Um, I, I, you know, if I could give myself advice all the way back again, I would be like, man, go find something that come hell or high water, you love it anyways, right? Which is martial arts for me. So that's the, that, that gave birth to one championship, you know, which is now Asia's largest sports media property, we're broadcast in 128 countries. Uh, it's a six-year-old startup and uh, broadcast to a billion potential viewers around the world. And, you know, we're well on our way to 4.4 billion fans one day in the future. That's the plan. So take me back a little bit to you have the idea, you have the location, you can move to Singapore. 
What do you do? What's the first step in making that kind of shift in your career and your life? I would say, you know, while I had this plan and this attack and I had a business plan and I had thought it out carefully and all that stuff, I still was full of fear, doubt, and security. I really was because, yes, I was a reasonably educated guy. Yes, I had capital. Yes, I had some connections, but I didn't know anything about sports media. I didn't know anybody in Asia. It's been so long that I lived in Asia. I didn't have any connections into the media broadcast world. So it was really, 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 really tough at the beginning. You know, no one returned my emails. No one returned my calls. It was very lonely. You know, it was very, very lonely. It wasn't like, you know, when I was on Wall Street, people would return my call or return my email because they didn't know me or I had a professional network or they knew of me or they did my fund or whatever it was, right? Here it was like literally just grasping the straws in the dark. I was hoping, you know. So during that phase, and I would say it lasted the first three years of the company. It was really, really hard because everyone I talked to, including my own family and friends, thought I was insane and that it was, it was never going to work. You know, the whole thesis was like, Chashri, Asians don't like sports. Why are you doing that? Or, or martial arts will never take up. You love martial arts, but no one else does Chashri. You know, on and on and on. And, and um, it was a dogfight. So, you know, one of the, my lucky things was uh, I had become friends with a guy who worked at ESPN. And, and ESPN was headquartered. Its Asia office was headquartered in Singapore. Uh, his name was Victor Kui. And he was a sports media veteran and expert. And I said, hey, come join me. Do this project with me. And so he was the first guy I brought on board and, and, and we did well together and clicked and he's still here today. And we built it out now, you know, uh, one champion has raised uh, about a hundred million in capital, institutional capital from Sequoia Capital, Tomasic Holdings division called Heliconia, which is, uh, Tomasic Holdings is a sovereign wealth fund of Singapore. So, you know, in terms of blue chip institutional shareholder base, we have the bluest chip possible in Asia. Uh, for any sports media property. So so I think the groundwork now and then our TV ratings have exploded, our you know, number of hours of broadcast per country has exploded, our social media metrics have just gone ballistic. Two and a half years ago, we had 312,000 views for the whole year. Uh, this year, we're annualizing already 600 million views uh, two and a half years later, and we're probably going to end the year with a billion views. So going from 300,000 views to a billion views, uh, video views, um, in a span of three years, you know, it just, I didn't expect it. It just took off because the first was, was a dogfight. The last three years has been just a rocket ship. The last 18 months has just been like the numbers every day. I look at the numbers, they're just exploding. I mean, just, it's gotten viral now, you know? Yeah. How did that happen? You know, I think, you know, it's a combination of, of, of being in the right place at the right time. Of course I had that big picture thesis coming into it. So I knew that I would be early. I knew that I, had fertile ground and I knew, you know, Asia's the whole martial arts. So I knew there's cultural relevance. It just took time to find the right formula that really ignited the Asian audience. I think I was fortunate also in that social media in the last five years, especially in Asia, just exploded. And the use of the mobile device uh, as a platform to watch entertainment and then the death of the TV, you know, even though Asia, people still predominantly watch TV on free to air TV and pay TV. It's not like in the U.S. where everyone's using mobile and, and, and cord cutting already. But I predict that's going to happen in the future. And live sports content within that context is very, very critical as a form of content, right? You're never going to watch, per se, a soap opera on your mobile device, a two-hour movie or whatever it is. But you will watch a three-minute you know, fight or you know, you know, some highlight reel of NBA three minutes 
on your in, in the subway, whatever it is. So that trend is going to happen in Asia for sure. And I think our numbers say that that's happening already. That you know the content owners are king in this new world of uh, of media, and live sports content owners are are the biggest kings. They're the they're the pinnacle of the uh, the entire content chain um, for any form of content because that's the only way you get concurrent viewers, right? When you say NFL Super Bowl Sunday, that's a hundred million viewers. You know you're going to get a hundred million viewers. Any other form of content has been been fragmented due to the um, internet and technology, like Netflix of the world dismantling everything, right? In the old linear TV world, before the internet, you know, when people said there was a show at 5 p.m., they could guarantee five million viewers because at that time they had a track record of it. But now no one watches a TV show at 5 p.m. because it says you have to watch it. Everything's on demand. So all of a sudden now the consumer has all the power. So, you know, all this kind of stuff was happening while I was launching. And, you know, so I was learning on the fly and all that stuff and, and, and still, you know, that, that frog in the coconut shell. And to get where I am here today, you know, many ways I do feel like the lucky idiot, you know, like Forrest Gump. It kind of all happened together without without some great master plan. It was just I love I love this. I had a big picture thesis. I'd done my homework into the research, but I still was. You know, it wasn't like I was some sports media veteran ex- executive who knew everything. I just knew nothing, nothing, nothing. What were some of the lessons that you drew from your earlier investment career that helped you take the step and then execute along the way? One of the things, you know, I was a value investor or I am a value investor, uh, but I call it value with a catalyst. I always like to find value in a great company, but at the same time, I like knowing there's a catalyst, whether it's a year out, six months out. Something that I know will unlock that value. So it could be a simple thing, you know, when I was a hedge fund it could be a simple thing as I really believe, you know, Wall Street had too low of estimates, on, uh, you know, out there. Or it could be as complex as, you know, I predicted they were going to spin a uh, division off or, or I thought it was a great takeover play. Whatever the, you know, potential catalyst was or new patent coming out, whatever. Um, so with that mindset, you know, and, and I always believe in doing massive research, you know, fundamental research really talking to the customers, suppliers, vendors, you know, employees, ex-employees, really getting a holistic view of a company or an industry. And that is what I applied here. You know, I called everybody, you know, just network and network and network and find out more information, learn more and put myself in learning mode. But at the same time, I started to see a picture forming in that the catalyst was going to be when the internet fully arrived into Asia, the way it has in the U.S. in terms of dismantling the traditional media industry, right? When was the last time you read a magazine or a newspaper or watch a TV show on a linear channel in the States, right? I knew that phenomenon was going to come, that on-demand phenomenon was going to come. So that was my catalyst. I was like, in that context, everything I read was live sports, live sports, live sports is going to be king in that context because every other form of content can be consumed on-demand whenever you want. But live sports still had to be, if the Super Bowl was, Super Bowl was going to start at 3 p.m., all of the United States was going to watch at 3 p.m. And that's very, very powerful for any sports media property, any media property to be able to do with advertisers and sponsors and broadcasters. So I knew that was my catalyst. And so, again, I think that research, that fundamental rigor as a hedge fund manager really gave me you know, ability. But also another thing about being a hedge fund manager is you can analyze great businesses and poor businesses. You can analyze great industry structures. You, you, I had a lot of context, a lot of breadth in a lot of different countries, a lot of different industries. So when I saw sports media, and I look at you know NFL as as the, the, the crown jewel, um, thirteen billion in revenue, seven billion in media rights. 
It is a phenomenal business. Amazing margins, amazing cash cow, you know, massive barriers to entry once you build it. You know, NFL for all, for lack of a better word, is almost a monopoly. And that is something that, you know, I knew because I was a hedge fund manager, you know, as opposed to let me start a restaurant chain or something with low margin. Let me start a supermarket. Like, you know, uh, um, I think if I was an entrepreneur without the fundamental backbone of being a hedge fund manager, I wouldn't even recognize what is a good industry, what is a bad industry, what's a good company, what's a bad company. I could see that this company could scale massively into the billions. I could see the incremental margins would be massive. You know, let's take the $7 billion of media rights for NFL. That's all 100% incremental margins. That There's no cost of that, right? They, ESPN signs a check. CBS or NBC sign a check. And that's it. There's no cost to it. So the scalability of the business model is massive. Um, and then I looked at how, how big the market here, 4.4 billion people. You know, NFL has 13 billion in revenue when there's only 300 million people, 350 million people in America. So I said, man, like the scale of this opportunity is, is massive, massive, massive. And martial arts is Asia's greatest cultural treasure, bar none. In the 5,000, it is Asia's greatest cultural treasure. So I said, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna create this to celebrate Asia's cultural treasure, greatest cultural treasure in a way that honors Asian values, that connects with Asian audiences, that really ignites passion for our roots and our history and honor honor our culture. And what's been different about operating this business, building and operating this business than you might have expected as an analyst analyzing it from the outside? You know, when you are an investor, especially a public market investor, you, and I hope I don't offend anybody on Wall Street, you actually think you're smarter than you actually are. Because you're analyzing all the numbers and you're making these bets and you're like, oh, the management sucks or the management's not intelligent or they can't do that. And I say, I challenge any hedge fund manager to go out and do what Steve Jobs did. And they will realize it's like not a, it's one thing to, you know, uh, crunch numbers on a spreadsheet and predict the stock and feel really smart because you made $100 million and, you know, 100% IRR. It's another thing to go actually make it happen and, and with people, with politics, with governments, with competition, with you know, investors, you have so many constituents to rally behind your mission, to rally behind the company. You know, but luckily I did have my startup experience when I was 27, right, when I was younger. And, and I, you know, 20 plus, in, in my 20 plus years career, the vast majority of my career actually has been as an entrepreneur. Because I, when I ran my own hedge fund, that's entrepreneurship too. That's, you know, you're, you're running your own investment fund. It's exact same principles apply, right? So the vast majority of my career has been in that startup world, you know, as an entrepreneur, as an investor, Etc. So I had a, uh, you know, I was fortunate in that regard. Was there an example of something that happened when you started building one that you went, oh man, like this is much harder than I thought it was going to be? Uh, definitely. Okay. So I thought that, you know, I come up with this great concept. I'm going to go pitch it to the broadcasters and be like, great, Chuck, let's do it. <laughs> man, like, no, well, this is, this is, you know, again, I got so much pushback, you know, who the hell are you and what the hell is this? And, you know, and then the broadcasters, they would experiment it. They would, do an, they would put one hour a month of the content. So how the hell am I going to build a fan base if you're putting it on TV one hour a month? You know, NFL is showing every week, you know, for several hours. Like, there's just, it was the resistance, the institutional resistance, even though everyone could theoretically agree with me that this is a great concept. I mean, in the, uh, the media industry could theoretically agree with me. But there's so much resistance because no one wanted to be that first person to make a bet on us, right? I mean, today we're on TV across Asia, literally 
at the low end, 100 hours a year, at the high end, 2,800 hours a year. 2,800 hours, that's you know several hours a day, every single day of the year. Uh, in some countries, we are on the on TV on that, that level. of, of, of uh, But in the very beginning, again, convincing employees to join you, convincing you know broadcasters to, to show your stuff, convincing sponsors to and advertisers to actually put down, dollars down. I remember our first show, Sony gave us 10 free little cameras, just little consumer cameras. And I was so ecstatic because I was like, I can't believe Sony gave us free cameras because then we could put the Sony logo in, in the cage, in the arena, right? Uh, in exchange. And I just couldn't believe it. I was like, this is unbelievable. Of course, I lost a million dollars in that first event. <laughs> <laughs> and so today, you know, one championship encompasses a whole bunch of businesses. You've alluded to effectively the pay-per-view event. But you also have training facilities, a real estate business, there's retail lines. Can you talk a little bit about what the breadth of what you're doing today is? So actually all those companies are separate standalone. So Evolve is its own entity run by its own management team. Evolve is what? Evolve is, is Asia's largest chain of mixed martial arts academies and has the most number of world champions of any martial arts organization in the entire world. Did you start with Evolve? That was my first startup and it's today it's still around and very successful and, and, and profitable and doing well. And I will grow that business or my management team will grow that business, you know, scale it across Asia. But all my businesses now are martial arts. So I have an online fight store, I have an online university for martial arts, I have brick and mortar martial arts academies, I have my sports media property one championship and so and a couple other businesses that are all martial arts related. But it, it actually all started with me just opening one small location, a martial arts school where I could train because I've been doing it all my life and I just want to train and get with world champions. And that business started taking off and that was what enabled me to say, you know what, this whole one championship thing is actually a bigger opportunity. And yeah, I mean, it was serendipity. I, I really feel like, like I said, I feel like I'm the Forrest Gump of martial arts. Walk me through Forrest's first couple of steps. So you started with Evolve, which is a one studio training martial arts. Tiny, tiny little studio, and you know, I, I suppose I could have. I had the financial means to make it a big thing, but I just—it never occurred to me that I was going to do this full time, and this is going to be it. So I just created a studio, which would be like my personal studio. But I also knew it was a business opportunity because I also knew that again, no one had ever tried to commercialize martial arts in Asia. That's sound, as crazy as it sounds. You know, all the martial arts schools across Asia are very mom and pop and backwards in many ways. You know, hasn't been brought into the modern era in terms of teaching methods, in terms of schedules, in terms of the facilities. You know, most are really crappy facilities, like in the back of a noodle shop in Chinatown. It just wasn't done it professionally. It kind of reminds me of the story of how Walmart was the first to really become, you know, a superstore with massive uh, inventory technology, uh, you know, IT systems in the back end, competing with mom and pop in middle America, right? That was how it succeeded. And having massive scale and, and, and because they had real-time inventory management systems tied into the P&Gs of the world, they're able to, to order, uh, keep lean inventories and, and price better and all that other stuff. I felt it was the same phenomenon for me when I, when I, want, when I launched Evolve. It's like my competition, they're all expert martial artists, but they didn't have the, you know, the business background that I had. So, you know, I did the best of best of everything in terms of facilities, in terms of technology, in terms of, you know, convenience, you know, in terms of 
the level of instructors, meaning I only recruit world champions to teach. The, the analogy would be like, if you're going to learn golf, why not learn from Tiger Woods and, and, and Jordan Spieth and all these, you know, big names? Or if we're going to learn tennis, why not learn from John Macro, Pete Sampras, Roger Federer? That was a basic concept. If you're going to learn martial arts, why not learn from the world's best? So I literally, you know, went to the States and got U.S. Olympians to come over to Singapore. I went to Thailand, brought Muay Thai world champions. I went to Japan and brought uh, mixed martial arts world champions. I went to Brazil, brought Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, black belt world champions, uh, WBA boxing world champions. So every discipline we have, Muay Thai, boxing, wrestling, mixed martial arts, submission grappling, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu submission, et cetera, et cetera, all of them are world champions in their arts. And I convinced them to move to Singapore. And then as a chain expanded, then, you know, I, I became more and more famous and all that stuff. And so you started with the facility, and then how long did it take to expand from just one gym to a chain of gyms? And how many and how many chains are there today? After I launched Evolve, shortly after, I think a couple of years after, is when I launched one championship. So that's when my focus became one championship. Um, because, you know, but I think what Evolve gave me was, man, I was, I was having so much fun. I've never experienced so much fun in my life. Like, I couldn't believe that was my life. I still can't believe this is my life today. Literally, like, we're going to Macau next week, okay, throw a major event at the Venetian. And, you know, you know, 15,000-person stadium, massive. It's going to be, you know, light sounds, fireworks, lasers. It's going to be music. It's going to be unbelievable. And I just sit there. I'm like, that's my, that's my job? I'm like, I just train all day, and I throw these amazing martial arts events with all the best world champions, all the best martial arts on the planet competing against each other, and – Somehow the whole world loves it with me right now, you know, and I just can't believe it. So, you know, Evolve taught me how much I love martial arts and how much how much happier I was doing it than I was a hedge fund. I'm getting hedge fund manager. Don't get me wrong. When I was doing, I really was into it 100 percent and I, I, I still love it. But it was it was after a while it became empty because there was no purpose, at least for me, there was no purpose. Again, maybe it's, it sounds kind of like arrogant because once you make the money, then you have choices, right? I guess that's when I was poor, I was willing to do anything for the, for, for, you know, to make anything ethically and morally to, to, to make it a dollar. But when I, yeah, when I made it on Wall Street, that's when I realized I wasn't actually happy inside, you know? Whereas with Evolve, I was thrilled nonstop, you know, happy 24-7. No matter what the problems were, it was so rewarding, so fulfilling, I felt like I found my place in life. Can you talk a little bit about the warrior spirit, which is something that you know, permeates all of martial arts training and something you've talked extensively about? In normal English, I think it would be called grit or perseverance. And I know there's been a few studies about this. Like if you look at the characteristics of the most successful people in any field, it comes down to grit and perseverance. In martial arts world, it's called uh, warrior spirit because for me, you know, I've done thousands of hours of martial arts literally over the last 30 years. And when you're tired or you're getting beaten up or, you know, your you're, you're teacher when I was younger, my, my master would discipline me and, you know, I wanted to give up many, many times. I was exhausted. I was in pain, whatever. He would never let me give up. And over the time, you start to forge a stronger willpower to conquer adversity to go through pain, to go through suffering. And, you know, that's one of the, one of the most important skill sets I really believe of any successful, you know, whether you, whether you are a, U, a U.S. Olympic athlete, whether you are, you know, a multimillionaire entrepreneur, whether you are the world's best singer, whether you're the best painter, 
you have to have the ability to go through immense amount of pain for something you love, right? There's no gymnast, no U.S. Olympic gold medalist gymnast who is not broken, you know, every bone or has not gone through massive injuries or you hear the stories of them training eight hours a day, inhuman stuff, but then they win the Olympic gold. So, you you know, I forget who said this, but, you know, find what you love and let it kill you. It's a famous quote. I can't remember who said Some philosopher said that. And I really believe that. I really believe that martial arts, for me, I love martial arts, and that's why I was willing to go to the pain, but that gave me a warrior spirit to go through everything and anything in life. Um, I can imagine how my life could have turned out differently if I didn't have martial arts training, would I have been able to survive my parents' family falling apart and going through poverty? And would I have survived HPS? And, you know, there's a lot of points in my life where I just, because I had a warrior spirit, that no matter if I failed, if I fell down, if I made mistakes, if I, you know, whatever, I always got back. I always got back up because that was my training. What were some of the biggest mistakes you've made in building one championship? Oh, I tell my team I make mistakes every day and I make the most number of mistakes and I fail the most on the team without a doubt. And that's true. Many, many mistakes. You know, I, I've almost, I've literally lost count of how many mistakes I've made. So I'll give you an example. In the first three years, um, I didn't quite understand and view, even though I knew I was a sports media property, I didn't behave that way. What, am I, what do I mean by that? All of my action should have been, okay, throwing an event, a live event, should have been towards driving massive TV ratings, massive marketing around the team. But instead, example, I would throw an amazing event here in Singapore or Manila, 20,000 people screaming. It would be unbelievable. Lights and sounds. And I spent a lot of time on the brand and the production and the, and, and the, the product. And I would make sure the stadiums were full because we'd market so heavily. But if you think about it, that's just one small piece of a sports media property. What matters more than what's happening in stadium, yes, with those great stadium experiences, was I driving activities, market activities, to drive all the TV ratings and the broadcasters. So when all these guys were showing it to me live, I actually had not done anything. Whereas today, we spend massive amounts of capital, time and effort and expertise. We throw the event, but we send massive coordination with all of our media broadcast par- partners to make sure that they are marking the event heavily, the date, the tune-in date, 9 p.m. Friday, August, whatever whatever the date is, you know, this is happening, the world title. So much of it is, you know, the buildup, right, on, on, on broadcasting. You know, I don't think there's any sport that doesn't build it up, and we, we didn't do that the first three years. And when we got to do that, that's when our team started to pick up. And so, um, you know, I made a lot of mistakes like that, a lot, a lot of strategic mistakes that, that, that I – and I think I would say is lack of experience in the sports media world. How do you improve the way you make decisions over time? I think, you know, that's one thing that I, I also learned from both martial arts and from being an investor. Intellectual honesty is the bedrock of continuous learning. Like, if you're not humble enough to say, I screwed up, raise your hand, I screwed up, my investment thesis was wrong, you're going to keep doubling down as the stock collapses or whatever, and you say, I'm right, I'm right, no, no. You have to be intellectually honest at all times of hedge for matter. In martial arts, it's the same thing. Like you can lie to yourself that you're good, but then you go and step in and spar with somebody or step in the ring, the truth comes out. And you can either deny and be like, oh, it was my off night, or you can really analyze and say, look, I'm really not good at these things, and if I improve these things, my game will get better. Same thing as a hedge fund manager, right? You can you can you know BS yourself, or you can be very intellectually honest. So I think as an entrepreneur. That is, again, a skill set that I feel very blessed and fortunate that I learned from the hedge fund world and the martial arts world is I'm brutally honest with myself. I know what I'm great at. I know what I suck at. I know when I screw up. 
I'm willing to admit it and I'm willing to learn from it. Um, and it doesn't matter if a subordinate tells me or a peer tells me or it doesn't matter where I learn it from. Uh, I have a mindset. There's a thing in, in martial arts that says, you know, you should try to improve yourself 1% every day as a warrior, okay? And that means improving your kicks, your punches, your knees, your elbows, your technique, your warrior spirit, anything. And I had that same mindset as an as a entrepreneur. I want to improve myself 1% in every area I can possible, you know, whether it's our product, our brand, our marketing, myself as an entrepreneur, myself and my leadership skills, you know, my ability to, you know, ignite inspiration or passion in, in, in my team, whatever it is. You know, I, I, I view myself as a perpetual student, uh, not a master. And you've talked a little bit about the positive experience you had at hedge funds. And a lot of people compare the management of hedge funds as something suboptimal compared to the management of broader base of companies in the corporate world. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw as an employee and then an owner of a hedge fund and the management disciplines you used and how that's similar or different from what you're doing today? So I think one thing that I really didn't fully appreciate, understand was in a hedge fund, incentives are fully 100% aligned, meaning that very simple. We're trying to make, you know, you buy a stock because you want it to go up, you're shorting the stock because you want it to go down. And whether you're an analyst, a VP, an MD, PM, it doesn't matter, we're all aligned, right? Also, incentives are aligned. Everyone knows that there's been a big, big pot at the end of two and 20, right? You know, uh, towards the year end, the year end 20, that everyone was aligned. On top of it, everyone on Wall Street is hyper-driven, highly intelligent, you know? And I don't mean intelligence because they have a paper degree. I mean, you know, genuinely the average IQ and EQ on Wall Street and, and the general hunger and ambition and drive, all that meant is literally top 1% of top 1%. You go into the real world, to, into industry, into corporate, Man, it's like night and day. So I was used to on Wall Street competing with the best, the brightest, the hungriest, the hardest working, the most passionate, the most ambitious people to coming to industries where people thought they're working, think they're working hard. Genuinely, they think they're working hard, but they have no clue how hard people work in Wall Street or Silicon Valley, you know, the two epicenters of capitalism. And I was fortunate to have, I've been blessed that I got lucky that I got the opportunity to work in both of those epicenters. So I think that is something that really translates. But also, I think I had to learn the finer and softer skills of leadership and management that, again, because not all incentives are aligned in industry, not everybody cares about money, not everybody wants to be a millionaire, not everybody has the right drive, not everybody has the right education, not everybody has the right skills, but somehow in your your, your diverse you know, employee base, you have to make it work. And not everybody's fully aligned in that regard. In Wall Street, everyone is razor sharp. Everyone is high IQ, high EQ. Everyone wants to make money. Everyone's aligned. It's, 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 um, so, but you don't learn the finer art of leading and management as a result, right? Because everything is fully, fully aligned. Whereas in the real world, things are not fully aligned. You know, we, we had talked a little bit earlier about when you felt like you had to make that shift and these key inflection points. And when you were at business school, you really, because of how you felt yourself, didn't want to open up to other people. When you started these businesses, did you have mentors that kind of helped you along the way 
uh, that you knew you needed to reach out to because you were passionate about this, but there was a, there was either a knowledge base or a skill set you knew you didn't have? I didn't have mentors, but one thing I did really well is I hired incredible people who were experts in their domain, and I let them run. You know, you know, I, I have this saying, or, or in martial arts, you know, if you want to be a lion, you got to train with lions. It's a saying in martial arts. Another analogy, another way of saying it is, you know, if to unleash your greatness, surround yourself with greatness. And so, you know, my team from bottom, top to bottom, they're all rock stars in what they do. Their domain expertise is unbelievable. I learn every day f- from my team. And that's something I'm not shy of. I don't need to be the smartest person in the room. I don't need to be the expert in each area. And in many ways, in, in the hedge fund world, on Wall Street, there was always a jockeying of who had the highest IQ or who was the smartest or, oh, my God, you're brilliant. In the real world, none of that crap because you need a marketing department. You need a production department. You need a sales department. You, you need all the pieces to work together, right? So it's not about who's the smartest person in the room. It's, it's how well can we work together behind a common mission, behind common values, given our execution plan and, and, and reaching for the same vision. How do you manage your time? Do you have any tools that you've put in place that help you figure out how to prioritize these many responsibilities that you have? Yeah, it's something basic that we learned at HBS, right? It's create a uh, four-box matrix between what is high priority, high urgency versus what's high priority, low urgency. You know that matrix. So I, I put all my tasks in that four-box matrix between, again, the, the X and Y axis are high, high urgency, low urgency, high priority, low priority, and really try to manage my day and manage my time that way. It doesn't always work out, but that's generally. <laughs> All right, let's turn to a couple of uh, closing questions. What's your favorite thing to do that's a complete waste of time? My favorite thing to do that's a complete waste of time. Hmm, that's a tough question. No one's ever asked me that question before. I don't know if it's a complete waste of time, but it's pretty brainless in that. I'll just go to YouTube and I'll watch old fights of Mike Tyson or whoever. And it doesn't really add to my job. It doesn't really add to my day. But I love martial arts. And so even boxing, like Mike Tyson, you know, watching these amazing fights from Muhammad Ali. So I will spend sometimes catch myself spending, you know, an hour or two hours just watching fights because I'm such a huge fight fan. I'm such a huge martial artist. And it doesn't necessarily add to me as a martial artist or as a CEO of a force media profit. I just love it. So, but I guess it's helped me to relax sometimes too, I guess. <laughs> just watching guys pulverize each other. Yeah, good. What was your favorite sports moment, either as a participant or a fan? I would say what happened in uh, Myanmar three weeks ago. This is kind of cool too. I mean, it's just really, really, I had goosebumps. And it was just one of these, like, I will forever treasure this memory. So, to put in the context, Myanmar has been a closed economy and closed society from the world. Not much different from North Korea. It opened up seven years ago, but before that was a closed society. I went to visit as a tourist four or five years ago, and it was like as if everything was frozen in time. I, I, all the buildings, all, you know, everything was like, I felt like I was in the 60s or 70s. It's like just everything was frozen in time. And now coming from Singapore, which is one of the most modern, cosmopolitan, international cities that you'll find in the whole world. Then you go to a country where everything feels like it's just, you're like you're lost in time. It's like, is this really year 2015 or whatever it was? And when we're launching this, when I'm you know building one championship, we were looking for Asian heroes. So there was this kid 
called Ang La Nsang, who was a refugee at age 14 from Myanmar, immigrated to America because of the collapse, the communism, or persecuting people. And we found him. He was happened to be an MMA athlete in America. And, now, you know, he's, I call him a kid. He's not a kid, but he's in his 20s. Um, or was in his 20s when we recruited him. Now he's, you know, early 30s. Let's say he's 32. And um, we recruited him into one championship because we thought he had a massive potential athletically, but also he was a good guy with an amazing life story and just really, you know, we thought he would be very helpful in, in Myanmar, even though we weren't quite sure because, remember, he fled. He, 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 he's a U.S. citizen now. He fled uh, uh, Myanmar. We were able to work strings with the government and brought him into the country to compete there for a few times, and he did really well, and he started winning on the circuit of one championship, and he became the number one contender, but the Russian world champion, Vitaly Big Dash, he's undefeated. And then just like a mantra, it was like a Rocky movie, like Ivan Drago, like the body and just machine, okay? And just a scary guy who's never been defeated. So we had this idea, said, okay, let's do a world title fight, because Angla had deserved it, in Yangon, the commercial center of Myanmar. And this was three weeks ago. And, you know, massive underdog. Angla, I was like, you know, the Russian guy is going to, annihilate Angla, but it'll be a great, still a great story because, you know, here's a refugee. He's right. He comes out and he beats the Russian champion in all under all like a stunning upset. Okay. The entire country was watching it live on TV. This is their first world champion in any sport on the global stage in any sport. When he wins, the whole stadium erupts. It's just insane. I could not, even, you cannot even hear yourself. And on TV, it's just blowing, blew out the ratings. His winning speech when he won, won, you know, in front of all the crowd, they're chanting. He goes, I'm not talented. I'm not strong. I'm not fast. But with you, Myanmar, I have courage. I have strength. I have respect. I am your world champion. Thank you, Myanmar. The country next day erupted. The commander in chief, the general of the army, the general of the navy, the general air force, and Biden, and big showing. Like, he's the biggest celebrity. He's like, he cannot walk the streets now, you know, in Myanmar. And then, more importantly, it's I start to think about the mission of one champion and what it means. You know, it's not just about fights. See, people think, oh, one champion is about throwing fights. No, our mission is actually to unleash superheroes who ignite the world with inspiration, strength, dreams, and hope. Okay, that's literally our, that's literally our mission. In, in, you know, in, in, in our company. So that night, I know when Angla won, the entire country of Myanmar could celebrate its first international hero. But I also knew kids all over Myanmar suddenly felt. Any dream was possible because that's what Muhammad Ali did for America. Like any dream is possible. That's what athletic heroes do. You know, Tom Brady, you know, he was a scrub and he became the greatest quarterback of all time. Like, and kids put their posters up, right? So Allah now has a poster in the child's bedroom and the child might not necessarily be an athlete or a fighter, but can say, I want to be a doctor. I want to be the world's best CEO. I want to be the world's, you know, best neurosurgeon coming out of Myanmar. I can do it because look, my hero Allah did it. That's what the essence of one championship about. That's the essence of our sports media property, why I'm doing it. I'm not doing it for the fights. I'm doing it to unleash superheroes uh, across Asia. And so for that moment, I know five years from now, ten years from now, we will have some child that say, I watched that fight live. And because of that, I became a neurosurgeon or whatever. And I'm telling you, man, like that brings so much more fulfillment to me than, you know, I would have, I think my best investment was like a, a, you know, a three bagger in six months or whatever it was. I got highs from that too, don't get me wrong. But when you're literally igniting an entire country of 54 million people with strength, hope, inspiration, and dreams, 
it's a high, man. It's a high. That's incredible. What do you know now that you wish you knew 10 years ago? I really wish I did have a mentor, Ted, to tell me to do what you love, have the courage to do what you love earlier in my career, rather than hold on to the fear, doubts, and insecurities of being a hedge fund manager because it was prestigious, because I had the right job, because I made the right kind of money, because I had the right zip code, because I had the right, quote unquote, social network. You know, those to me are not reasons to live life. Those are, to me, a way to exist. I think that there's something deeper in all human beings that when you find it, you know it. And I didn't have the courage. I was that frog for too long, hiding behind my fears, doubts, and insecurities, where today I genuinely feel like I'm still filled with fear, doubts, and insecurities of different different types, but I I don't give a damn about them anymore. You know, I just don't. Because I'm so grateful that I get to do what I love and that I have a higher purpose too. The fact that, you know, again, that whole story of the Myanmar story, uh, igniting 54 million people, you know, with our, with our stories, with our events and our live broadcasts and our, you know, um, so we do a lot of documentaries behind our athletes to inspire people. You know, all of that to me is just, um, would have come sooner if I had the courage and the guts to do it. Right. Um, so, and the other thing I would say too is, you don't have to know all the answers before you do something. And that I think that is a tough thing for a hedge fund manager, you know, because as a hedge fund manager, you try to know every single thing, especially the key risks that you need to underwrite, right, as an investor. If you have that mentality in life, if you need to turn over every rock before you do something, you'll never begin. It's endless. And what matters most in life is, are you happy truly happy when no one is around, when all the society crap drops out, when your parents, what they think of you drop out, when your, your loved ones, your friends, your professional, your Rolodex, when you erase all that, and it's really hard to do it, right? Because it's, all those factors influence you somehow. But if you can remove all that and say to yourself, this is what I was meant to do, this is what I love, and I don't give a damn what all those people think about me because I'm happy. That is powerful. That is power, man. That is power. And unfortunately, you know, I didn't learn that until much later in my life, but I'm still grateful. I'm still relatively young. So I'm still grateful that I, that I learned it early, but you know, I wish, you know, those two things would have been, would have changed the course of life. I don't know how much more differently. I and mean, I still be at the same place. It's just maybe here a little bit earlier. All right. One last question before we wrap up. What does your mother say to you now? My mom just sent me an email three days ago because uh, we announced that, you know, Sequoia Capital invested, right? And so she read it in the news or I think she read it in Forbes or one of these things. And she says, Chashri, be humble. And the number of times she sends me emails about being humble, I can say it's every other email. Because, and there's a lot of wisdom in her words, you know? I'm the recipient of a lot of luck and a lot of blessings in life, my whole life journey. And yes, right now I may be, quote unquote, you know, leading a, a really game changing company in Asia with a potential multi-billion dollar outcome. But my mom has always stressed that my humility has always been one of my strengths because I'm always learning and growing and that attitude. And so she's afraid all the fame and all this achievement is going to pollute me. But I don't think so. I mean, I, I have been able to live true to my values. 
I think I would say I was a lot more arrogant as a hedge fund manager, actually. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, Ted. It's, it's, a, it's a testosterone-filled world where you're too young to be making millions of dollars, and yet you do, right? And so you, and so you think you're much better than you are. You're smarter than you are. You're more accomplished. In reality, money is not a good barometer of achievement or success. How can people listening stay in touch with what's happening with one championship from, say, the States or wherever they are around the world? So, you know, we're active on Facebook, on Twitter, Instagram, etc. I am too. You can just Google one championship or you can Google me and you can stay stay abreast. But at least in Asia, it's kind of hard to miss us. Chachi, thank you so much. Congratulations on both what you've done with your life and the success you're having. And uh, until I get a chance to get over to Asia and see one of the events myself, which I'm greatly looking forward to. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank, thank you for having me, Ted. Great questions. And Definitely, man. If you're free, come out to Singapore. I'm sure you're going to have a blast. You know, it's one of these things that we really try to make it a once-in-a-lifetime experience for everyone who attends these events. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Take care, bud. Okay, take care. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one, and see you next time. 